they want to use something other than traditional medicines to help their medical condition. Instead of someone taking a Xanax or something when they want to go out at night, they can take a hit from a vape pen and just say, hey, listen, I'm much more relaxed about this. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, a lifestyle podcast hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Tune in for a new episode every Tuesday to hear our honest conversations about topics like wellness, entrepreneurship, spirituality, and self-development with guests who are really smart, really inspirational, and really fucking funny. (laughs) It's real, it's raw, and it's unfiltered. Inspired by our transition from our 20s to our 30s, we realized it's so much more than that. Our mission is to provide you with the tools, guidance, and motivation to help you navigate any transitions in your life and propel your personal growth. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. You're back, fam. Greetings. Do you remember when like Thursday was like the night to go out? Yeah, I do. I do. So long ago. I would go out Thursday and then Friday and then I'd drive home to work on Saturdays. I would serve. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. In college? Saturday. Mm -hmm. I would go out Thursday. Come back. Come back. Actually, I fucking loved it. I was like, oh God, I can get away from this place. Totally. I bartended actually. Yeah. You did? Yeah. I worked and then I worked TV or two serving. Mm -hmm. Dude, I made so much money bartending up in Boston. Like to think about the cash that I was hoarding in my apartment during that time. I remember paying cash for like a vacation. And I'd be like, BRB, I'm going to go to Kenwood Mall and spend 200 on a BB dress. <laughs> We've got a mixer for Oh, yeah. The amount I spent on cotton bubble dresses actually makes me ill. I don't know why I like bought so much like cocktail apparel. <laughs> I literally had so much cocktail You're Like apparel. in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, it was crazy. But I guess you were in a sorority. Mm-hmm. That's why. Did yeah. you have like little formals and shit? Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know if I could function. I didn't have enough. Like, oh yeah, you weren't at one. They didn't have them. Oh yeah. Yeah. I probably would have been cool. in one. No, yeah, yeah what, I would have been in one. I never thought I would be in one, but you know what? Everyone in my sorority thought the same about it. You know, we were just yeah. like, it's fine. Like whatever. I don't know if it's like worth the money essentially, but everyone I met in my sorority, I actually like love. And yeah. It was really cool. Both of my sisters were in them. They loved really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sororities for life. Anyways, back to smoking weed. Back, 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 back to, to chilling. Back to chilling. Um, our, our conversation with Perry Solomon of Hello MD continues mm-hmm. today. Uh, grab your notebooks, y'all. This one gets even deeper. How cute is Perry Solomon? He's so sweet, He's so adorable. knowledgeable. Loved him. So excited about like what is happening in the cannabis world, and really feels so passionately about bringing, you know, lifting the stigma off of this like culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for so long. I mean, I remember growing up, like my parents would be like, are they smoking weed at that party? You know what I mean? It's totally. like, it was never a discussion. And now I'm like, yo, you two, you should actually be taking some. Yeah, you should be <laughs> taking weed. So if you're just joining us this week, so uh, the most recent episode that we had on Tuesday um, was the beginning conversation of us speaking with Perry Solomon, who is chief medical officer of HelloMD. HelloMD is the leading digital healthcare platform for the cannabis industry. So they use the service to connect with doctors to get medical 
cannabis recommendations and gain entry into thousands of cannabis products and just advice on its medicinal efficacy. So that's pretty much, it's like a hub for all that information and Perry oversees it. So in our first conversation, we started it out um, talking about CBD, its benefits, et cetera. So we're going to continue that conversation today. I'm excited to share it with you, excited to have a conversation with you about it. Um, so email us, join our Facebook group, let us know what you think. Um, we're here and excited to help and talk about this. Enjoy this one, guys. How do we like educate on like a grander scale, you know, educate the generations like my parents' generation, Mm -hmm. you know, who are dealing at this age, like 60, you know, around that age with like pain, you know, just getting older, but also, you know, having a hip replacement, knee replacement, you know, things like this where, you know, how do we, how do we educate on that level? You know, because it's a stigma to them. They're like, no. It's very. It's it's it takes a, a, it takes a lot of time, and yeah. a lot of it has to do. It, it's a really a two pronged approach. The first is, I believe, to educate physicians about it. Um, as I said before, there's very there's only one medical school, at least as of a year or two ago, one medical school out of 144 that teach a course, a course in the endocannabinoid system. And about 13% of the other 143 mention it in some way, shape, or form. And there was just a study the University of Washington released last year that 97% of the residents came, who came, or medical students who came out of medical school had absolutely no idea about how to talk about cannabis with their patients. So that keeps going on as someone specializes or let's say goes into orthopedics or whatever. So here they, he or she is after they've done a hip replacement, like you said, on their patient. And the only thing that they know how to give is some opioids. And opioids do have their place in acute pain syndromes. In other words, for a few days, opioids are very useful. What happens after that is where the education breakdown happens with the physicians in that instead of refilling that prescription for 30 days or every time the person comes in, say, listen, you've had three or four days or a week of opioids. Let's segue you into using a ointment, a tegaderm, a strip of something, a tincture to help you with your pain because I don't want to really give you opioids anymore because of obviously the risk of addiction, the constipation, the other side effects that happen with opioids. But they're stymied in that they don't know about it. They don't know how to dispense it. And so they're in a little bit of a bind. On the other hand, the patients usually have more information than the doctors. So they might come at someone, grandma, your mom might get a hip and you walk in with her one day to the doctor and say, hey, Doctor, you know, I, I read about cannabis helping my mom instead of these opioids. What do you think? And he or she may say, well, I don't really know. Um, and so, or I don't want to talk about it, or it's a schedule one drug. We can't discuss it here. Or we've even had doctors who fire their patients and said, listen, if you're starting to take cannabis, I don't want anything to do with you. You have to find another doctor. And there are doctors who are still living in that type of, uh, you know, prehistoric mindset and have done that. But it takes, so the education has to happen with the physicians and as well as the, the patients being more and more aware. And there are stories every day in the newspapers about the opioid crisis. CNN is putting on their weeds thing with Sanjay Gupta. They have, they've had three of the fourth ones coming out in April, talking specifically about opioids and pain and cannabis, which is a whole other 
story about how that started. That definitely had a pharmaceutical company uh, mm. uh, a, a start to it, and they were absolutely responsible for the opioid epidemic starting in uh, you know starting in the in, in the nineteen seventies. And that really was 19, 1986, 1996 is when they started with OxyContin. But that's a that, that's a different story. Can you tell it? Can I tell it? I could talk about that. This, this, is, this, is, this is a talk I give to, to medical staffs all over the country. Um, we're kind of like medical staff. <laughs> Same medical thing. Staff. <laughs> um, essentially, what happened is that opioids were no one, none of the doc, no, no physicians in the 50s, 60s, 70s really wanted to give a lot of opioids because they were, it's called, they had opiophobia. They were mm. worried about people becoming addicted to opioids. As and they should. They always, you didn't really want you really hesitant about giving opioids to to patients because you kind of didn't want them to get addicted. Well, in 1980, uh, these two researchers in the University of Massachusetts wound up doing. They did a study in about for 12,000 inpatient uh, people who had acute pain in the University of Massachusetts, and these are patients that had acute pain were treated in a hospital for a very short time. And so they found out of those 12,000 or so people, they uh, found a rate of addiction of less than 1%. And they said, wow, this is really pretty interesting. So they didn't control it. They didn't do a uh, formal investigate, formal study. They didn't do it for peer review. All they did was write a five-letter letter to the editor to the New England Journal in 1980, and in the five, and it was five sentences. And the key sentence was that they found less than one percent of the people got addicted to opioids for pain. That was it. And four other sentences. Well, okay, so that's 1980. So time passes, and now it's. You know, people start and okay, now it's in print. So this is before the internet, kind of, and and things. You could, it was very hard to research what this hap- what happened with this study, and people started hearing and and talking about less than one percent of the people get addicted. Well, in the still kind of under the surface, still people didn't want it. wasn't well known. People didn't want to talk about it. And in the early 1900s. I'm sorry, 1990s, people started saying, listen, you know, patients are in the hospital. They're in a lot of pain. We should, you should really start giving these patients more pain medicine because people were unhappiest in the hospital when they had pain. And, they, and so they said, well, how can we look at this and get an idea? And the pain score, a pain, a pain, um, a way to m- m- measure pain. I don't know if you remember or, or saw, there came out this little smiley face thing. There's like five faces. There's a really happy face, not a happy face, <laughs> frowning face, et cetera. And, you know, and that's the pain score. Are you one, two, three, four, five, you know, one to 10 amount of pain? So people are coming out eight out of 10, nine out of 10. And of course, the 10 are the sad faces with the eyes tearing. That's a lot of pain. And so the joint and so pain society started saying, yeah, we should start saying that, listen, we, we know the study by um, uh, Jink, Porter and Jink in Massachusetts said there's less than 1% of the people. And they did re- they looked into it as best as they could, but it kind of got passed down as, as folklore. Yes, less than 1% of the people got addicted. You don't have to be worried about giving people pain. And so this is now, now you're talking about 1994, 1995, 
And the hospitals started getting dinged by the Joint Commission of the American Hospital Association, which has to certify the hospitals. One of the key ingredients that they looked at was, is the, are the patients leaving in pain? And if the patients came out and said, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain, the hospitals would start getting dinged. And doctors who weren't prescribing enough opioids to keep their patients pain-free were getting dinged. So they said, well, how do we need better pain medicine? We, this is, we're just giving them the same stuff every two or three hours. And so it was a confluence of things where people kept thinking that it was less than 1%. The hospitals and the pain societies were being forced or required to make the patients more pain-free. So then Purdue Pharmaceuticals in 1996 introduced OxyContin. And build it as a the best thing ever to come out of pharmacies because you only could do, dose it once every 12 hours, and you had and it, there was there's less than one percent of pain relief pain of addiction with these people. Now the, it was the Purdue the Purdue family is founded by um, oh, Har- oh God blocking on me. Give me one second. Mortimer uh, and Raymond Slacker or Sackler. Oh, oh Sackler, yeah, 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 Sackler. Right, the Sackler three brothers, Henry Henry Sackler, it was a brilliant marketeer. He was a psychiatrist. He uh, he started. He did part of the company, and in the beginning, he was with the first. He they first got in his company, got the first hundred million dollar ad supply. I mean, sales to doctor to doctor selling of Valium. So he was a brilliant marketeer. He wound up marketing only to doctors who prescribed a lot of opioids. So they wound up, he and his brothers, Mortimer and Henry, and I can't remember the other guy, the other one, but anyway, so they wound up pushing OxyContin on doctors saying, yes, there's less than 1% chance of addiction. You guys don't have to worry about. Purdue Pharmaceuticals was the first company to start doing Dr. Junkets, to start doing their own magazine, essentially promoting their own medication, doing studies that were quasi-legal, not quasi-legal, quasi-accurate. So, And they were pushing this heavily on people who were doctors who were prescribing opioids to their patients. For, I mean, I remember distinctly because I was I practiced in that era, and I remember distinctly get, seeing my orthopedic buddies getting these free trips down to Mexico to Hawaii oh golf trips, you know, by Purdue Pharmaceuticals because they were saying less than one percent is not a problem. They gave out plush toys, they gave out this, they gave out that. They had informational things put on by doctors, and the employee were getting paid to to push these drugs, and essentially. That started essentially. That started the opioid epidemic, and since then, the opioid pharmaceutical companies have put in about eight hundred million dollars in in uh, in advertising to the people, and that completely dwarfs the the gun lobby, which is only eight million dollars. Uh, so, in terms of the in terms of I'm sorry, eight billion dollars in in terms of money and in terms of clout, the pharmaceutical companies far outweigh every other industry in the country in terms of cloud politically. And so they're also heavily involved in political contributions. And the Sacklers have, you know, brilliantly distanced themselves from Purdue, even though they still own it. It's a private company. Right. And so you see Sackler hospitals all over the world. They're, they're the most philanthropic 
uh, uh, family probably for, for tax breaks reasons. <laughs> for tax break reasons, and I don't, I doubt it's for guilt, but mm. uh, these people are responsible for this. And again, they knew this was going to happen. They, there was. I have a film in my presentation of one of the people at. Purdue talking about to doctors and insisting, and it was a, a TV part of a TV, a movie called, oh gosh, I'll think of it this, again, I'll think of it in a second. Um, I got my life back. And essentially mm. they got their life back because they were taking opioids. They interviewed seven um, people in that film and subsequently 15 years after four had overdosed uh, on mm-hmm. opioids and one said that she would have if she hadn't lost her health benefits. So these people were, they got their life back essentially temporarily and then wound up being addicted to opioids. Oh. It, it, it's something that is talked about. There's, there's more and more articles coming out about this history of opioid and how the opioid epidemic started. And essentially now also why heroin is taking mm-hmm. off at the heroin slash fentanyl um, uh, death rate is coming up. Part of that is that um, uh, Purdue changed the formulation in 2010 to their oxy in terms of they used people used to be able to crush it up, make it a powder, and inject it or snort mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And they changed the formulation to because as soon as people would do that, it would become this gelatinous mass that you couldn't do that. So people were saying, well, if you look at a graph, that one of the things I have is a graph around 2010. The fentanyl epidemic and the opioid overdoses shot up primarily because people couldn't use opioids like an oxy as they had in the past. And so they said, well, let's start using something else like heroin. And heroin mm-hmm. is very, very inexpensive. Well, to, get, to get a Percocet or an oxy can be $5, $10, $15 per pill on the street when someone can say, listen, I have this other stuff. It's much cheaper. It's just as good. And it'll get you, give you a great buzz, which of course is heroin slash fentanyl. No one knows, you know, so many fentanyl deaths are happening now because mm. fentanyl is getting mixed in with the heroin. This is so crazy. In 2007, didn't, um, didn't Purdue get like a slap on the wrist or something uh, like about- $600 million fine. And they, they what did was the it. tipping point for that? Like what caused that? Or like, how did they get uh, well, caught? They, 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 they are very proud of the fact. And they say, we have never been convicted of any misdoings in any court, which is absolutely true. The reason is, is they settle everyone before mm-hmm. it gets to court. Mm-hmm. So they can honestly mm-hmm. say, we never lost. They never have. They've just settled everything beforehand. That was done by the DEA because they were essentially lying to the doctors, lying to the uh, DEA about where they were putting, where how many they were selling, where it was going. And the distributors, McKesson is one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of the, they've gotten fined also because it winds up happening that in a West Virginia town, for example, whatever, 10,000 people, there was tens of thousands of prescriptions being written by one pharmacy and no one ever thought to think that, well, where are these going? Well, they're being mm-hmm. diverted elsewhere. And the distributors didn't say, well, it's not our problem. We're just filling what the doctor wrote. And the manufacturer is saying, well, it's not our issue because we're just doing what the distributors are telling us they need. So mm-hmm. it turned, so these pharmacies, so now... The other part of the fact that's uh, where that's going on is the DEA is starting to clamp down on doctors who 
yeah, there were pill mills and Florida was very famous for them. And people would go in and there'd be a line of people getting oh. scripts for 30 days. Pill mills. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that seems to be slowing down because the DEA is starting to look at doctors who are overprescribing, which again leads to the same problem of what's an alternative for a doctor to do if he can only give, let's say, a week's worth of an opioid and the patient has pain for two weeks, what do they tell them to do after the first week? The doctor is saying, listen, I really can't give you any more prescriptions. I can, but someone's going to start asking for my records and this and that. So, you know, I, and so the quote solution, and that's what's been promoted by some of the people in, in, in this administration or and wherever is do other things, maybe meditate, acupuncture, massage therapy. I mean, all these things that one, insurance companies don't pay for usually. And two, whether or not, you know, someone who's a broken hip, acupuncture, massage therapy is going to help them. Eh, I have my doubts. Um, I mm. have seen uh, cannabis help in those cases, but it's something, again, that the doctor sort of throws his hands up and says, well, I don't, I don't know what I don't know. how to use it. How do I tell this patient who I'm only getting to give a week's worth, worth of Percocets, how to use it? I, I, I just don't know. And yeah. so again, it comes back to how do they find out and how do they get educated about giving it as an option? I'm not saying that it works as a panacea for everything and it doesn't, mm -hmm. but to give an option to the doctor is something else to be able to talk about with their patient is something that needs to be done. I know it's been used as like a natural cancer treatment or like a supplement to um, normal cancer treatment. And I know it's not approved by anyone yet. Um, but what are like the anti-cancer properties? And do you think that if like the research is done and if it's publicized like in the media that this has helped to either prevent or cure cancer, like that could be such a big way to you know, get it out there that it could be of, you know, some mainstream like help in, in treating pain and all of that? Well, I have to, I have to say that um, can, uh, cannabis curing cancer is not something I would say. And, right. and, and, and I uh, put it this way, online, uh, anecdotally from people who say that, Mm -hmm. um, I, I, we do not say, I, I personally say that cannabis does not cure cancer. There's mm -hmm. been no studies that show cannabis cures cancer. What cannabis has been shown to do is in the laboratory, in a Petri dish with a few cells, it has been shown to kill essentially these cells in a dish in a lab. Um, mm. people seem to draw the conclusion that because it does that, that it could cure, can cure a cancer or cure prostate cancer, breast cancer, what, whatever it is. And, you know, renowned scientists in the field, you know, up, in your, up in San Francisco area, Donald Abrams is an oncologist who firmly believes in cannabis helping the nausea and vomiting mm. that goes along with chemotherapy for peripheral... Stimulates hunger, right? Mm -hmm. Stimulates yeah, hunger exactly. as well. And nausea from chemotherapy. Cannabis can help that. People write us all the time on our site because we have an interactive site. People can type in questions and doctors and other patients and manufacturers answer the questions from all over the world. It doesn't make any difference. And that's one of the things that's nice of the patients to be able to ask questions about it. And I say when someone says, well, what dose of this should I take for my father's prostate thing and my lung cancer and this? 
And I have to say, I, 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 would, I would recommend whatever your oncologist is telling you to use chemotherapy-wise or surgery to treat your cancer to do that. By the same token, it probably doesn't do any harm to take the cannabis in conjunction right. with okay. that therapy. I would discuss it with my oncologist um, at, that I am doing it because there are certain things in the cannabis that can interact with chemotherapy drugs that, that are given. So they should understand what it is that you're doing and, and know about it by that token. But to have someone say, I'm not listening to my traditional doctor, I believe in alternative medicine, mm-hmm. and I have this big cancer and I'm just going to use cannabis to cure it. I tell them, I think you're mistaken and I can't recommend doing that because um, I, I, it just doesn't, as far as I can see, it does not work for that. And, I, and a traditional medical way to go is probably the best thing. And people will say, I, you know, my uncle Joe or my so-and-so, my can- I use this for two months and my cancer is gone. Well, you know, a, a cure for cancer, cancer is three years, five years, I'm sorry. So you have to be cancer-free to be a cure. And, you know, if someone says it's gone for a week, a month, you know, well, that's nice. I'm glad. But I, I, to attribute it to cannabis, I would have a hard time doing that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. No. Yeah. I knew that. It's more like, so it it is a an aid in helping the body, you know, get nutrients to stimulate the hunger, to, you know, reduce the stress so that the body can heal. So it's it's being used for that. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. yes, yes, but you know, but like I said, unfortunately, there are yeah, people, people are taking it too far. Yeah, I feel yeah, you. They take it too far, and there are people who promote their cannabis as curious mm. and that, that, even though they can't make claims, the way it's couched and phrased is that you know we've seen da 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 da. You know, people are cured of cancer using this product, and yeah, you know, again. You know, there's lots of charlatans out there, and you know, whoever someone goes to to get medication, they mm. should get something from a company that has a good track record of producing the medication, knows where it comes from, tests it, etc. You know, people who buy you know CBD on the internet or whatever, and you know, which yeah. are all over the place. I would I would be hesitant to do that unless it was a company that has a good reputation. It's a bummer that they do that. It's like it's just like the big. F- like pharmaceutical companies just kind of selling lies and, you know, so I, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that's regulated, you know, because I think that would be a bummer to again, put like a stigma on what, you know, the benefits of what this is. No, I agree. And on the, the piece of the benefits, can you talk about the, um, can you talk about two things? So the benefits of CBD and it's so the benefits and its effects, and then the benefits and its effects of marijuana. Well, it's a, it's part of marijuana. It's it's um, it, well. It's, so I'm just talking about just taking like CBD on its own, and then just using marijuana. Yes. Some some people do use CBD only, and they use it for mainly an anti-inflammatory type of event, um, and they don't want to have any chance of psychoactivity, um, which. Is, is fine. I mean, there are things that CBD alone is useful for. And, that, and like, for example, like I was saying, anti-inflammatory, which encompasses a lot of things, you know, in terms of it could be an eczema is essentially somewhat of an anti-inflammatory. So something that's rubbed on the skin like that is something that's very useful or CBD 
pills, you know, it's just oils that are made from CBD. And, you know, people say, well, is it better to have CBD from hemp or CBD from whole plant? And, you know, I tell people, you know, which is always something, and, and the two camps always diss each other about it. Uh, mine's better, no, yours is better, no, mine's better, you know. So, you know, essentially CBD as a molecule is like, it's like I, I equilibrated, I like to H2O. H2O is water. Now, is, is the water... Water is water. If it comes from your tap or it comes from Evian and you're paying $10 a bottle or whatever, the molecule, the molecular component of what it is, is H2O, just like CBD is an actual molecule. So whether the molecule comes from hemp or the molecule comes from the whole plant, is it's the same. What changes is any kind of additive things that get put into the composition, including the CBD. In a whole plant, for example, they may have the terpenes that I was speaking about, for example, as something that may be added. The hemp people may wind up adding terpenes to their product. So it's hard to say which is, is better. It just depends on what else is added to it. So someone may want that for, again, an anti-inflammatory type of reaction that they would use. Um, and what else would be what else would be used for what? And what was the other part of the question? Just like what, what would someone use CBD for? So, and then we'll talk about marijuana. So if they are feeling, you know, like what are some of the symptoms that people are saying that CBD helps them with? Well, for example, um, uh, there, menstrual cramp in, in women. I mean, there are some top, some uh, uh, suppositories now that are coming out that are just CBD as an anti-inflammatory that appear to be working without any THC in it, whether or not, and again, it's an individualized type of thing. People use it also for migraines is another way that people are using CBD only to be able to treat that. Um, again, the entourage effect seems to show that that may be a little bit better with THC, but there are people who get a fantastic response with just a CBD only to be able to use specifically for their migraines. Um, sports and recovery is another one where people just use an ointment, like a, a, a salve or an ointment on their skin that seems to help muscles relax a little bit. And also, again, because you know, muscle injuries is an inflammatory type of product a byproduct of exercise and things like that. I love using the CBD um, like creams and things. Mm -hmm. So what is it actually doing? So it's like being absorbed into the skin and into the bloodstream or like directly into, I don't know how it works. And then it's like connecting the CBD1 receptor to the CBD. It's the CBD2. So the CBD would just be the CBD2 um, receptor. And that's what it's theorized is what it does. You know, on the skin, there are people in the medical community and the cannabis community who feel that it doesn't get absorbed at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people think that it does. Um, Again, it may get absorbed better with with a plastic covering on it like a like a, a patch which because what happens with the cream is some of it can get evaporated uh, up in the air and some people put it on and it comes with a plastic cover on it that essentially hmm. eliminates any type of evaporative loss and all gets put into the skin but some people also use a THC slash CBD ointment and the same and they ask us well can that get tested for THC positive if my work is screening for THC, and that's a questionable thing. Enough can get absorbed to test positive for THC in your urine 
if your job um, tests for that. So people say, well, what should I use if they do test me and I don't want to take any chances? We say, well, then a CBD only because that's not something one is psychoactive or two that people are testing for. Do you have a favorite brand of CBD or method to consume or use CBD? Uh, I don't, um, I can't, I'm, uh, but the, I, uh, the brands, there's a lot of them. I can't mm. give anyone specifically. We don't like to play favorites. I know, I was going <laughs> to say, I'm like, I guess you have to be. Yeah, well, they, they, the, I, all I would say is a reputable dealer who mm-hmm. uses good, good cultivation methods and tests their product at the beginning and at the end to make sure that there's no pesticides. And that's one of the reasons that people, for example, hemp from overseas, for example, China, there are, like I said, a lot of the um, internet companies. What happens is they have to use so much hemp that comes over from um, Asia, for example. And what they use over there also to help the plants is a lot of pesticides and chemicals, etc. Now, what happens with the hemp is you have to go through tons of it to be able to extract the CBD from hemp. And what also gets extracted, and because you're concentrating it so much, are those toxins, are those pesticides, et cetera, that were used when the hemp is growing. So, and wow. a lot of the run-of-the-mill CBD companies um, use hemp from those type of mass um, uh, grows where you don't know what it is that they're using, which is why hemp that's grown in the United States, Colorado has a huge hemp field, California's having more and more, are getting hemp from areas where they don't use pesticides, they do test their products frequently to for that. So those are the types of companies that I would use their product for instead of some generic CBD that you don't know where it's coming from. That is so key. I'm so glad you said that about the pesticides. That's mm-hmm. so important. That is so important. Okay, last from. question um, for me. So um, it, is it right that, so marijuana is now legal in California for recreational use as of Gen 1? It, Cal, uh, California, yes. It, they, and they call it a, adult use. Um, adult use. It's more, it's more PC. Um, I believe <laughs> that, uh, you know, to say it's recreational. Or you know, it, isn't, it, isn't therapeutic. Well, well, it's the thing is, is that we look at, but but I'll answer your question, then go into it a little bit more. Yes, as of January one, put it this way: counties that allow adult use and dispensaries that have an adult use license are able to sell cannabis to anyone over twenty one. Um, I think it's twenty three percent of the cities and counties in California have elected to do that. The other 70, whatever, 5% are still either waiting or decided not to let uh, recreational dispensaries open up or change from medical to recreational or to add recreational um, in their in their county or town. And, you know, the jury's still out about how many of them will eventually accept being able to do that um, instead of, or just staying medical or not having any. I mean, some counties don't want, never wanted medical, and they're certainly not going to want recreational. The one thing they all want, however, is the revenue that comes in mm-hmm. from the taxation about this. So, you know, which is billions and billions of dollars are going to be filtered and given out. And so what's happening, it's a dual full thing. I mean, put it this way, right now there's a extra 9% sales tax that a person with a cannabis recommendation can go to get a state card and be exempt from that 9% tax if, if they choose to go that route. Um, the counties and towns want as much revenue as they can, and we've seen prices going up such that 
it's getting to be 40, 50 times more expensive than it had been previously to January 1. And people are saying, listen, it's so expensive. I'm just going to go on the black market. I'm just going to buy it illegally because it's so expensive. And so what's ha- unfortunately what's happening is towns are getting very greedy, pushing as high a tax as they can possibly do and driving people to get their cannabis from another source you know, i.e. the black market. So it depends on how much, how greedy the towns get to be able to uh, keep that in check so that that doesn't happen. So that's happened. So that's California. What else is like, what else is happening in the United States for other states? Like, what do you see the trend moving towards um, so that some of our girls who are all over the world actually, but you know, if we think about the United States, like what can they expect across the next year as it relates to um, the cannabis industry legally? Well, I mean, my my crystal ball is as good as probably any, anybody else. <laughs> I trust so, you. So I, you know, I there's still now there's 29 states that have medical. I think it's now seven or eight that have recreational or adult use that's that's legal. Um, I think more, hopefully more states will allow medical for you know across the board to be able to be used to help patients who are you know hurting and want to try something else. Um, adult use is something that probably more states will wind up going towards. And again, I think it has to do with, you know, there's a, there's a revenue issue also is that mm. if they tax it, they'll be able to use it to fill the coffers of the state and the local towns. I think though that, you know, the other thing that happens is the amount of uh, what people can ingest or buy in different states is completely different. So someone in California says, I want to, you know, I want to have an edible and I'm going to New York. Well, in New York, there are no edibles. You can't use an edible in New York. Mm. So each of the states have their own individual types of product, one, and two, medical conditions that people can use it for. And even if people do go into it, it is a wreck thing. You know, we look at it as a big bell-shaped curve. On one side, there's people who just want to get high. They don't care about anything. They just want the biggest buzz, the biggest THC, the, 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 the Cheech and Chong stoner dude. On the other end of the curve, there's people who are really, really sick. They're really, they're using it for seizures. They're using it for something where they're, they really need this for the specific medical condition that they're using. And in the middle, there's the whole health and wellness part of it, which is, the biggest part of the curve where people are using it for anxiety, using it for stress, they're using it for, like I said, menstrual cramps, sports and recovery, they're using it for migraines. These aren't people that that are severely ill. However, they want to use something other than traditional medicines to help their medical condition. Someone want, instead of social anxiety, instead of someone taking a Xanax or something when they want to go out at night, they can take a hit from a vape pen and just say, hey, listen, I'm much more relaxed about this. Mm-hmm. You know, are they are they using it for recreation? Well, not really. Are they using it for you know a strict medical issue? Well, kind of, but it's not, but it's more of a health and wellness part of it. You know, stress is a huge player. You know, we found when we did our, our previous studies, again, 60% were pain. The other ones were were migraines, stress, anxiety were the biggest things that, and depression were the biggest issues that people had that they were using cannabis for. So, but people still want information. And that's where, you know, like you said, and people in other parts of the country, and we go to, we're in New York now, we do tele-evaluations in New York. And, you know, it is, and we've been, again, we feel a little jaded, not jaded, but a little different out here in California because we've been doing it for 20 years in terms of it being medically 
um, allowable. So people have a great deal of experience in how it works. And in New York, the, the people, we get questions that are cannabis 101 from hundreds of people almost every day asking, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so as, as these people are starting to get online about this, they still really need education to be able to know what it is they should take. And even though it's still legal here, we are still in California getting lots of calls for recommendations, not so much that they need the recommendation to purchase the cannabis, unless it's in a city or town that doesn't have a recreational license, but they want information from a reliable source. And so they, you know, it's a very disjointed thing if someone's a 50, 60 year old woman, for example, and she has trouble sleeping, you know, you go into a dispensary and the people she's talking to over the counter aren't really her generation. They may not understand her. There may be some, you know, tatted up person with piercings that they look at and they, it's like their grandchildren say, I'm telling this person that I have trouble sleeping. I have menstrual cramps. You know, it's, it's not something that they're really comfortable in doing. And so they turn to us to be able to get that information. And also young people who also go in and they don't really even know the right questions to ask, you know, a bud tender or someone in a dispensary. So they turn again, turn to us for an evaluation, even though, again, they may not need it to purchase it, but they get it for information mm. that they perhaps they're getting it from a reliable source from other doctors, from other patients who have done it instead of someone there who says, yeah, I just sold this down, you know, to, to five people and they all came back and said it worked. Well, you know, that's, that's okay, but it's not exactly what someone really wants to hear. They want to talk to someone who has, you know, years of experience about doing this and being able to see what else other people have reacted to. Which is the other thing on our site, people are being, uh, we're going to be able to see what worked for them. How many patients be able to, one thing I learned is that people like talking about what bothers them, their medical condition, but even more so patients like talking about what helped them, what worked for them, uh, Mm -hmm. which is more of a driver than someone who has a vested interest in a dispensary to sell the, whatever's selling good that day or what's not selling good and pushing that type of product, which you know, happens in all businesses. It's not just not just cannabis, but patients want to hear from other patients what it is that worked for them. And patients, we find patients want to share that information amongst their peers, their, their age groups, and whoever else wants to listen to what they have for insomnia, what works for them for migraines, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thank God for you guys. You know, yeah. I think like rebranding, you know, the way in which you get information about it is so important just so you reach more people, you know. My last question is so, and pretty simple, but so the CBD, the THC, is there any like dependent dependency, like fears about this? Is there any like science that says you could get addicted to this? You know, there's studies have been shown that purely by itself, I think it's a four or five percent of the people seem to get a, a quote addicted or or reliant on cannabis. And I think, you know, it, it, could I can I say it's absolutely no one will ever get quote addicted to it. No, I think people get can get reliant on it, just mm. like they can get reliant on anything essentially yeah, coffee anything like that get, yeah get relying on alcohol um i think it's you know it's a moderation type of thing i think that people still have to know if they have that type of a personality or um want to try and slow things down i think it's a substitute for any the better the best substitute for anything else 
for, for any of these medical conditions to be able to do. Um, I, I don't look at it at all as an entry drug. We look at it, I look at it as an exit drug for traditional medications to be able to help people segue off whatever they're taking now for, mm. again, whatever it may be, whether it be the anti-inflammatories, whether it be the opioids, um, or something that doesn't really work for them traditionally into something like this. And again, it doesn't work for everything. It doesn't, it's not this, I can take this no matter what my medical condition is, I'm going to get better. Like if someone has a low thyroid production and they're on Synthroid, cannabis isn't going to do anything. I mean, you got to keep taking your Synthroid because there's no other way your thyroid is not working anymore. So you need, you need, you need Synthroid. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not going to help something like that. But if someone has, uh, you know, migraines and the triptans doesn't work, they try Botox in their head, that doesn't work. You know, this is something that to, to, for someone, neurologist to, or whoever they see their family doctor say, Hey, you know what, why don't you try you know, something with cannabis for your migraines. It can't, it's not going to hurt. You're not going to get addicted. I wouldn't worry about that. It's something that you should try at least to see if it does work because nothing, either nothing works or for insomnia. I mean, how many people, you know, and they have trouble sleeping at night and how many times do people get hooked on Ambien or Xanax to be in it, which are extremely mm-hmm. difficult and really physically addicting to, and psychologically addicting versus Taking a, 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 a kiva, a kiva mint or some, um, or whatever it is, whatever they have now, a blueberry to be able to chocolate covered blueberry to help them sleep at night if they if they again if they need it. Um, well, Perry Solomon, you're doing like the work that needs to be yeah, done. Man, Thank you so much. Crazy. Like it's like you know, there needs to be these touch points for every type of person who wants to, you know live a pain-free life or mm-hmm. get more sleep or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. I mean, man, oh man, mm-hmm. get your notebooks appreciate out. This. Appreciate this so much. Great. So where can our listeners connect You know, with you? HelloMD.com. HelloMD.com. And it's a... You know, it's an interactive site. Uh, we work very, it's, we're worked very hard on making it very friendly where people can go on and search for conditions that they have or questions that they have because many, there have been tens of thousands of questions asked and answered uh, on the site already. And to do a search on migraines, do a search on uh, uh, menstrual cramps, a search on stress, and questions will come up and answers will be there about people who've asked and answered those questions already. And if they have something that they have a question about themselves, again, they can type the question in and it gets put on our stream and someone will wind up answering it. Um, And that's 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 the be- that's the best way to do it, and and you know we have we vet and, and look at all of our comments and questions, and so they're as reliable as we can make them. Um, and you know people doing a web search themselves and getting to X Y and Z site, and Doctor Google is telling them to do this or that. I, you know, again, there's a lot of claims made in in the in the internet as, as everyone well knows with whatever fake news or something that <laughs> someone puts on a thing oh this cured my cancer this oh i took two drops of this and um you know i am like i'm a healed person i you know it, it, i would look at those and say that's nice and go on to mm-hmm. try and go on to a site that's a little more reputable right Great information. Thank you so so much. Sure. Um and i'm sure our listeners will have all of their questions answered. They've been asking us. We're like, okay, okay, we're going to bring on someone who's going to answer all of them. And you did. So thank you so much. We appreciate your time. 
We appreciate that so much. And Perry. we'll have everything in the show notes, kind of more information on some of the topics we talked about, you know, about Purdue, about um, Henry Anslinger, about Hello MD, um, all the work there. So we'll have everything in the show notes. And again, thank you, Perry. I hope you have such sure. a great Sunday. Really appreciate your time. This is so wow. great for our community. So appreciate it. To sure. the glad, glad to have helped. Awesome. Right, have Perry. a great Sunday. Talk right, to you soon. You Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes Weed Week here at Almost 30 Podcast. Weed Week the first is of its over. Kind. Actually, I don't know if anyone's done Weed Week. Yeah. I love saying that we've done it first. Weed Week. We hope you Chuck got it up. a lot out of these two episodes with Perry Solomon. We encourage you to go to hellomd.com. There's so many resources, so many great articles, even like recipes I was looking up. Oh, really? Yeah, it's cool. Hmm. And connect with us on every social platform. We want to hear from you, talk to you, tag us. We do feature Fridays every Friday and we feature, you know, all of you tagging us in Mm -hmm. all of your things. Mm -hmm. And we just love you for it. And if you haven't joined our secret Facebook group, do so now. Search us, Secret Almost 30 Podcast Group. We'll accept you. We're just chilling in there with the best people Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, So thank you guys so, so much. And stay tuned. We are going to announce our dates for our Almost 30 tour in Chicago, SF, New York, and we're possibly doing other cities. Mm-hmm. We'll see. <laughs> Chris's I'm face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right, guys. We will chat with you next week. Stay tuned. New episode on Tuesday. Love you guys. See you soon.